general impression of repugnance. Okay, so you see him, and just something one doesn't like. That general impression, that's the sign. Then, as you have dealings with that person, everything he does somehow just causes annoyance and anger. The way he speaks, the way he moves, the decisions he makes if you have to deal with him. He <coughs> invites you to his house for dinner, and somehow the way the invitation is, is spoken just bristles, just bristles your mind. All of these particular aspects, these are the features or details. And so, ordinarily, when we dwell with unrestrained senses, then the mind is constantly getting impinged on by sense impressions through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. Ordinarily, we first register the impact of that general impression, then we explore or investigate the detail. If it's a pleasant, agreeable object, then as we explore and investigate the details, then the mind becomes fascinated and entranced by the details. And as it becomes fascinated and entranced by the details, then what's called here covetousness, that's longing, or desire becomes strengthened. And when longing and desire become strengthened, then, well, this is especially for the, given for the training of monks, then it can lead to some transgression or violation of the code of conduct, some breach of sila. That's in the case of an attractive object. If it's a disagreeable object, unpleasant object, then as the mind goes on dwelling on the details, then instead of there arising desire, there arises anger, ill will. What's called here grief, dominasa, dislike, displeasure, and as this displeasure gathers momentum, then also it can lead to some type of violation of good conduct. And even if it does not lead to the violation of good conduct, but still, as these mental states, these unwholesome mental states of desire and aversion keep on arising in the mind, and growing stronger in the mind, then they reinforce the defilements of greed and hatred, or of <laughs> desire and ill will, which creates greater obstacles to the development of samadhi, or concentration. So for that reason, the Buddha instructs the monks to exercise this restraint over, over the sense faculties. So as the 
monk gains control of the sense faculties and is capable of restraining the sense faculties, then the mind will not be invaded, not be overrun by these unwholesome states of greed and diversion, desire and diversion. And the way this sense restraint is achieved is not by ignoring the objects of the senses. In fact, there's a sutta that comes, the very last sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha speaks about the restraint of the sense faculties, or the development of restraint of the sense faculties in the teaching of the Noble One, in his own teaching. And he compares his method with the teaching, there was some Brahmin teacher at the time, who would teach his faculties, his pupils, to gain restraint of the faculties, don't see any forms with the eye, don't hear any sounds with the ears, don't smell any sense with the nose. In other words, the disciples should just try to cut themselves off from any type of contact with sense objects. I don't know how they could do that perfectly, but maybe they would just go sit all day in a cave and just avoid any kind of exposure to any potentially interesting or uh, attractive sense object. But the Buddha says that in his discipline, the restraint of the sense faculties is not practiced in that way. The basic way it should be practiced is by guarding the sense faculties so that one does not seize upon or grasp the signs and features of the object. That is, with the senses one will notice the object. And so, even for a monk, if a beautiful woman, if he should see a beautiful woman, then he registers the impression and there might come impression, beautiful woman. But he doesn't seize, let the mind seize upon that or grasp that as an object of fascination. And then he holds the mind back from its instinctive tendency to start exploring the details of the features. What is the hair like? How is the smile? <laughs> How are the eyes? <coughs> And so by not grasping the signs and features, then the desire and aversion will not overwhelm or invade the mind. They might arise initially, and when they arise, then they should be dispelled. And then if something, okay, that's in the case of a pleasant object, if an unpleasant object comes into into the realm of experience, into the, into the range of perception, say a very annoying sound. One is sitting, maybe trying to meditate, and there's a pounding, there's maybe some 
construction workers are working repairing the road outside with this pneumonic drill, ring, 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 ring. And so the sound, the terrible sound will come. If one, this is the kind of object that one doesn't want to seize upon, but if one can't escape from it, then the sound will just impose itself on us. Then you hear the sound. If you're not exercising restraint of the ear faculty, then you'll just keep on dwelling on that unpleasant sound and mulling it over in the mind, thinking how loud that sound is, how disturbing, how raucous. And then the mind will become more and more angry. But while the sound is continuing, one might just attend to it simply as an object, as bare sound. And so one goes on listening, sound, 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 and one is hearing the sound, and maybe it's unpleasant, so you'll be noting it as unpleasant sound, unpleasant sound. But since you're turning it just into an object of observation, then you're not dwelling on the details, the unpleasant details of that sound. And then it just becomes a neutral object. Okay, those are just a few examples of how that restraint of the senses can be practiced. Okay, did you have yes, a question? I have a question. Um, what does this mean in the case of the mind? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah here... I think we, we have to understand that in this way. Actually, the agent that is really responsible for unrestraint of the sense faculties in all these cases is the mind. Since the eye by itself doesn't see forms and doesn't um, evaluate forms. What is evaluating forms is the mind which sees the forms through the eye. In the case of the ear, too, the ear is the instrument of hearing, but the ear doesn't hear and evaluate the sound. That is the work of the mind. And also what exercises the restraint in the case of all the senses is the mind. The eye by itself doesn't say, think, I'm not going to be attracted by pleasant forms, I'm not going to be indifferent to unpleasant forms. But it's the mind which exercises that restraint. So in the case of the first five senses, we should understand that it is the mind exercising restraint with respect to each of the sense objects perceived through that particular sense faculty. So the mind operating, exercising restraint in respect to form, sound, smell, taste, and tangible. But then the mind faculty also has its own special activity and its own special object. That is purely internal object or mental object. So it might be that without the mind not is, is not attending to anything 
outwardly, but maybe is recollecting some experiences that it underwent earlier in the day. For example, it might be recalling some, if you ate something delicious for lunch, then in the evening, especially the monk not taking the evening meal, (laughs) he might be recollecting, oh, that was such a delicious dessert that I had, such a delicious pudding that those people had offered. Mm, Maybe we can get some pudding like that <laughs> with next week's dana I'll arrange a bigger arrangement okay so in that case this is the mind faculty operating in its own domain in that case the monk would have to exercise restraint of the faculty the mind this is Now he's exercising restraint of the mind faculty by preventing the mind from dwelling on those memories of past pleasant experiences. Or suppose earlier that day or a few days earlier, somebody spoke very harshly or angrily to you. And then as you're sitting quietly in the evening, suddenly this memory comes of somebody speaking harshly to you. Then that memory, it refers to something spoken, words. But since it's now occurring in the realm of memory, then the restraint is a purely mental restraint. So it's a restraint of the mind faculty. And so we could see that these same kinds of sense impressions that occurred earlier through the sense faculties are now occurring through the mind faculty. And also the mind can even construct thoughts and images and fantasies and memories based maybe purely on even on abstract objects. Maybe somebody (laughs) who is or is a mathematician, if he's trying to discipline himself, train himself for samadhi, the mind might be dwelling on quadratic equations and mathematical hypotheses and logical functions just through the play of, of the mind faculty. Or somebody who is a writer might be imagining writing a book and devising, creating one chapter. And do mathematics. And if he's a writer, then if he's sitting down to write a book, then he has to devise his plan for writing the book. But the, the Buddha here is speaking to monks who are training the mind or samadhi, and in that case the emphasis has to be on simplifying the activities of the mind and just bringing the mind into the present, to the awareness of the present. Okay, so since there was one question and now it's getting late, so rather than go into the next section, I'll just ask if there are 
any more questions on what we dealt with? Intuition, I would say that intuition doesn't quite come into the realm of restraint of the senses. Intuition meaning a kind of spontaneous insight into the nature of a situation or the character of a person. That intuition in that sense? I would say that it's not quite relevant to this situation. That I will come to this uh, uh, later. I'm going to deal with each of these sections in turn. I just put this on the board just to show the material that will be that will be dealt with over the next in the next part of the Well, as I explained, the really operative factor in this whole process of restraining the sense faculties is the mind, the mind faculty. But sometimes the mind faculty is functioning directly through the senses, through one of the senses. While I'm right here, I see a pleasant form. I hear a pleasant sound. I see an unpleasant form, hear an unpleasant sound. That is the mind operating through the eye faculty or the ear faculty. There will be other occasions when the mind is not working through any of the five physical senses, but is just working either with memories and imaginations concerning the five physical senses, or is dealing with its own objects. In that case, we speak of the mind faculty operating independently of the senses. Well, the senses actually themselves are not really, you know, they don't have an independent life of their own. They are just like the instruments of perception. It's the mind which is using them as its instruments or tools. Yeah, that's a physiological explanation, and in the Buddhist texts, no attempt is made really at a physiological explanation of how how the mind functions in relation well no exp- physiological explanation is given of the functioning of the mind but this would be the, the, the way a physiologist would explain it It takes training. 
but the Buddha is here dealing with a very elementary stage of training for developing this restraint of the sense faculty. Well, somebody who has already developed the mind will be able to apply these methods of sense restraint very quickly and immediately. Whereas here the Buddha is sort of explaining how one should train in order to develop that restraint of the senses. What is the One can explain it in terms of the khandhas, but in this particular passage, well, it's not done explicitly, but okay, let's say the way how it might be explained. Okay, we say the form and the eye faculty will be rupa. When the form makes contact, it is Chaku vijnana, the eye consciousness, which sees that form. If it's an agreeable form, there'll generally be a pleasant feelings, and there'll be a perception of that form, and then there will be some a tendency for the mental formations or sankharas to arise, particularly if it's a pleasant form, the sankhara of greed or desire. If it's an unpleasant form, then there will be generally a feeling of a painful feeling, a dukkha vedana. There's the perception of the form and the tendency is for the mental formation or sankhara of aversion, ill will to arise. And all of this since it's occurring through the eye, it's eye consciousness. Okay, when this happens, then one exercises restraint of the sense faculty. So, initially, say, the mental formation of desire, the mental formation of aversion arises. Now, instead of getting swept away, one recollects oneself, and one brings up the mental function the mental formation, the sankhara of mindfulness. So one thinks mindfully, now I've seen a pleasant form. Desire has arisen in regard to that form. Let me restrain that desire. Then one makes an effort. This is another sankhara, another mental formation of effort or energy. And through that energy, then one restrains the desire. Okay, so that's an explanation in terms of the kundi. If however normal the eye and self is, if the connection between the eye and brain is broken, yeah. then, no forms will be seen. then no forms will be seen. Actually, I would say also that even though the word here used, chakku, means I, literally I, but probably in modern terms we might include the entire visual apparatus, physical visual apparatus, from this physical eye through the retina, visual nerve, up to this part of the brain that registers form. 
Well, that's the way it's usually explained also. It's explained that way in the suttas. I think probably because the Buddha is working from the level of what is grossest and most easy to perceive to what is subtlest and most difficult to perceive. So rupa, matter, or material form, is the most evident. One could hit it, touch it, grab hold of it, and one is aware of it. Feeling, the next four are mental factors. Feeling maybe is more, is subtler, but one can detect it more easily. Perception maybe is a little subtler than feeling. The mental formations more subtle than perception. And then vijnana or consciousness is the most subtle of all. But for the whole process of perception or cognition to occur, one needs consciousness. So that's why when explaining in terms of the origin of this series of these factors, it's easiest to begin with consciousness and then to show what is present on an occasion of consciousness. Taking the forms, the feeling, perception, and the other formation. Okay, it's getting late, so I think we should stop now. theme of this discourse by the Buddha is the answer to the question, what are the things that make one a samana, a true ascetic or a recluse, the things that make one a brahmana, a brahman, not in the sense of Hindu Brahmanism, the three superforms, the sacrifices and the rituals, but what are the things that make one a true holy person, a person who embodies holy qualities? And to answer this question, the Buddha will explain step by step the entire training of the Buddhist monk from the very beginning up to the attainment of arahanship. And as we saw last week, he starts off with two very elementary qualities, mental qualities that are the very basis for morality and for ethical conduct. Those two qualities are hiri and otappa. That is, hiri is the sense of shame, which is the 
innate repugnance against doing evil deeds or wrong deeds because of the sense of one's own dignity, the sense of one's own personal honor. And otappa is fear of wrongdoing, that is reluctance to do wrong, hesitation to do wrong, because one is afraid first of the opinion of other people. If they learn about one's wrong conduct, they'll blame you and have a low opinion of you. And also fear of the consequences of doing wrong, the karmic consequences. Fear that one will accumulate bad karma which will bring suffering in the future. Okay, so these are the first two qualities that the Buddha mentions as things that make one a monk or that make one a, a recluse. Then, in the next passage, he brings in another quality. In fact, in the next four passages, we will have four qualities which are different aspects of sila or virtue. The first of these is purified bodily conduct. So he tells the bhikkhus that they should train thus, our bodily conduct shall be purified, clear and open. The word for open here, it's natchitava, which means, I'm sorry, the word for flawless here is natchitava, which means literally without any cuts or holes. So it should be purified, clear and open, flawless and restrained. Okay, so those phrases are the basic characterization of the purified bodily conduct. Then the Buddha adds another another phrase which is very significant. He says that on account of that purified bodily conduct we will not laud ourselves, extol ourselves and disparage others. That is, one should be pure in one's bodily conduct, but because of one's virtue, one should not think, ah, I am great, I'm wonderful, and these people who are not so virtuous, not so moral, those are worthless, good-for-nothing people. One should not think such thoughts, and one should not speak in that way, boasting about one's own good qualities and disparaging others for their bad qualities. Okay, so that is what I explained up to the point where I explained last week. Then the Buddha continues with his instruction for the monks. He says, now, we're in paragraph four now, now you may think thus, we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing 
and our bodily conduct has been purified, that much is enough, that much has been done, the goal of the ascetic life has been reached, there is nothing more for us to do. The Buddha says, you may rest content with that, but, but I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the monk's status or the stature of the true aesthetic, do not fall short of the goal of the ascetic life while there is still more to be done. Then the Buddha points out in the next paragraph what more is to be done. Our verbal conduct shall be purified, clear and open, flawless and restrained, and so on. And here by verbal conduct, purified verbal conduct, we could understand this from the general or common standpoint as being the purification by avoiding the four bad courses of verbal conduct. That is, abstaining from false speech, abstaining from malicious speech, that is, speech which is slanderous, which slanders others, refraining from harsh speech, angry or cutting speech and refraining from chatter or gossip. That's the most general way this should be understood, but the commentary explains that we could also understand here for the monks, the bhikkhus, various rules governing speech that come down in the vinaya and perhaps in the most general way there's a set of topics of it that come down in the suttas called tirachanakata, which translated literally will mean animal talk, and includes 32 topics of just useless or pointless talk for bhikkhus. It begins talk about kings, talk about thieves, talk about flowers, garlands, if we were to expand it into, or make it relevant to today's topic, talk about politics, talk about maybe the stock market, <laughs> talk about sports and athletics, talk about movie stars and rock, rock musicians. <laughs> all sorts of idle chit-chat <laughs> that are not necessary for one leading a holy or spiritual life. <coughs> okay, and so this will be purified verbal conduct. The rest of the passage is the same as bodily conduct. Next pa paragraph repeats the same thing in terms of mental conduct. Our mental conduct shall be purified, clear and open, flawless and restrained, 
and we will not praise ourselves and disparage others because of that purified mental conduct. I find this paragraph here a little interesting because later in the same sequence of the sutta the Buddha will speak about the training of the monk who goes off to overcome the five hindrances the panchanivarana and so the elimination of the five hindrances seems to be a later stage in training So here that would raise the question, what is meant by purifying the mental conduct at this stage? Because the five hindrances include kamachanda, sensual desire, and vyapada, ill will, as well as sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. And so here my guess or interpretation would be that the mental conduct which has to be purified would be a grosser level of mental defilement than the five hindrances. Perhaps when we come to the five hindrances under sensual desire one will think of just maybe subtle thoughts and fantasies and imagining of sensual desire on the part of the monk. And under ill will, just subtle thoughts of anger, resentment, or aversion towards others. Whereas here, under mental misconduct, one might, we might understand the grosser types of thoughts of sensual desire, grosser thoughts of anger and ill will, and all sorts of mental thoughts such as desire for, say, praise and admiration from others, envy and jealousy of others who are more successful, Um, thoughts of disparagement of others, thoughts of arrogance and conceit towards others. Um, Maybe thoughts of scheming and plotting in various ways to promote one's own advantage or to do harm for others. And so I think that aspect of mental, of purified mental conduct would come under sila whereas the elimination of the five hindrances, that would deal with these same defilements, but at a more subtle level, where those mental defilements are becoming obstructions to samadhi, or to meditation. Here, the mental misconduct would be the mental defilements of the type that if they are unrestrained and unchecked might break out into wrong bodily and verbal conduct. This would be the initial stirring in the mind of the thoughts that lead to moral transgression.
Otherwise, it would seem if one purifies one's mental conduct entirely and completely, then there would be no need for the Buddha in the later part of the Sutta to deal with the elimination of the five hindrances. Okay, in the next paragraph, (coughs) the Buddha says to the monks, you should train thus, our livelihood shall be purified, clear and open, flawless and restrained, and we will not praise ourselves and disparage others on account of that purified livelihood. And here you might be a little puzzled by the word livelihood or ajiva in relation to monks. You might think that, well, maybe it's only lay people who work (laughs) at occupations and monks don't have livelihood. But actually, first of all, I think, as the commentary explains, at a grosser level, one should understand in the case of monks that they should not become involved (laughs) in types of trade and business and professions which are generally the domain of lay life. It even mentions that monks should not become involved as physicians. (laughs) And nowadays, I think one would have to say that monks should not become involved in politics (laughs) and should not become involved in business (laughs) and other types of involvements which are potential avenues of bringing in income, but which are unsuitable for monks. But it seems in Pali, the notion of ajiva, livelihood, has a wider meaning, which is also applicable to monks. And in this case, livelihood will mean the methods or means by which one acquires the requisites of existence, the means of living. And there are different types or different different ways or techniques that perhaps even in the time of the Buddha some monks used in order to get their requisites which the Buddha has prohibited, discouraged and prohibited. For example, the monks are not to come to lay people and say, give me this, give me that, unless the lay person has made an open invitation to the monks and said, if you need anything, please inform me. In that case, it's proper for the monks to go to the lay people and say that we need such and such, providing that they ask for things that are appropriate for monks, and without, in such a way that they don't put a strain on the resources of the lay people. But on their own initiative and without any open invitation from lay people, then the monks should not just go calling on houses and asking directly, give me this, give me that. Also, 
the monks are not permitted to hint that they need certain requisites. <laughs> For example, maybe if some lay people come to visit the temple, wealthy lay people, they say, can I give you a little tour around the temple? Then they come to an open plot of land and say, you know, a new residence hall here would just look splendid. This is the perfect place for a new residence hall, isn't it? <laughs> and also, even the monks are not permitted to make an outward display of, or to put on an act displaying certain qualities when lay people come to the temple in order to try to inspire faith in lay people so that the lay people will of their own initiative make offerings and support the monks. For example, maybe a monk is sitting on the veranda looking out and he sees some wealthy lay people come driving up <laughs> in a Mercedes Benz then he'll get out his meditation cushion <laughs> and the veranda and when the lay people come walking in he'll be sitting <laughs> suddenly he'll shift when they come in as though he's just emerged from deep samadhi <laughs> and he'll make some comments like this Dhamma is very profound very profound difficult to understand. <laughs> or else if he sees the car approaching, then he'll get off the veranda and go out if there's a chunkmana, go out to the chunkmana of walking very mindfully. <laughs> and when the lay people come, come up if they cough and go, Venerable Sir, maybe he'll go walking back and forth a few times, <laughs> still as though he's so deeply absorbed until they speak more loudly, then, <laughs> then he'll make a show as though he was just emerging from deep concentration. Okay, so these displays of virtuous qualities as a means of engendering deeper devotion in lay people so that they will make make offerings uh, as a means for the monks to get their requisites, that is included under a wrong livelihood. Also the Visuddhi Magga mentions another example is that the monk refuses offerings of requisites in, as a way of promoting in lay people greater confidence in him so that he will get more offerings in the future. <laughs> so if he gets an offering maybe of a simple robe, he'll say, enough householder, I am content with only three robes. I have my three basic robes. And then the lay people get so impressed with his ascetic qualities that they go talking to other people and the lay people make offerings of dozens of ropes. 
Of course, this does not mean that the monk should not, if he's observing the practice of wearing only three robes, he's perfectly entitled to refuse robes, and that is not wrong lively, that's right livelihood. It's just that if he hypocritically refuses extra robes in order to, to get a greater number of robes in the future, that becomes wrong livelihood. Okay, so these are some types of wrong livelihood that are to be, to be avoided. Okay, so that takes us through paragraph 7. And as I pointed out before, these four practices, purified bodily conduct, purified verbal conduct, purified mental conduct and purified livelihood. These are all comprised under sila or virtue. Now in the following one, two, The following four paragraphs or sections of the sutta, the Buddha will deal with four types of practices which form a kind of intermediary link from sila to samadhi. That is, four practices which bring an internalization of purity. And the Buddha begins, we'll just take over at the end of the end of paragraph seven. After the Buddha mentions purified livelihood, he says to the monks, Now, bhikkhus, you may think we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing, our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and mental conduct have been purified, and our livelihood has been purified. You might think that much is enough and nothing more has to be done and you may rest content with that. But I inform you, I declare to you, if you seek the status of a true ascetic, do not fall short of the goal while there is still more to be done. And now we come to the paragraph which begins, or the section which begins this intermediary process of training oneself so that one is actually training the mind as a preparation for the attainment of samadhi or the jhana. So we can we recall these four steps, the transitional steps that lead from sila, purified conduct, to samadhi, concentration, absorption. And the first of these is restraint of the senses. 
actually restraint of the sense faculty, Indriya's faculty, and Sangvara means restraint or drawing in, closing in. And here the Buddha explains how that restraint of the senses is achieved. You should train thus, we will guard the doors of our sense faculties. We have the five outer sense faculties and the mental faculty. So on seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp or seize upon its signs and features. Since if we left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness or longing or desire and grief or ill will or dislike might invade us, we will practice the way of its restraint we will guard the eye faculty, we will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And then the same is repeated on hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odor with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a tangible object with the body, on cognizing a mental object with the mind, Again, the same, we will not, we will guard the faculty of the mind. Okay, now, this paragraph, first it shows what happens when one leaves the sense faculties unguarded. That's the ordinary way in which the senses operate. Somebody who does not have any exposure to the teaching of the Buddha Dhamma or to any other religious teaching which emphasizes inward concentration when constantly the senses are making contact with objects in the world. Eyes, through the eyes we see forms, through the ear we hear sounds and so on. Now, initially, there just takes back place the impact of the object on the sense faculty. And when this happens, first there comes just a general impression. This is what is called here that general impression. The sign of the object. The word is nimitta. That's the general appearance of the object. So, for example, a man sees an attractive woman. So the first thing he sees is he gets a general impression. Woman attractive. A woman sees a handsome man. First impression, handsome man. That first impression is the sign. Then the mind 
fastens on that sign and then begins investigating or exploring the details. That's called here the features. Anubhyanjana. It's the particular features. The man first gets the impression, pretty woman, then he looks, nice hair, pleasant smile, nice way of walking, sweet voice. <laughs> the woman sees handsome man, he looks very self-cut in the details, well smoothly shaven, nice vigorous walk, <laughs> self-confident appearance. Those are the anubhyanjana details. On the other hand, sometimes, okay, there's somebody you don't like, that you feel aversion towards. Sometimes this happens even somebody that you've never seen before, but maybe there's some karmic connection or the person reminds you of somebody else you don't like.